Hello, welcome to Coffee and Conversations. We have four students gathered here today from a Food Matters class to discuss world hunger. My name is Ellen. I have a liberal studies major focusing on sustainability, biology, nutrition, and philosophy. Hi, my name is Alex. I'm also a liberal studies major. My emphasis is sustainability and philosophy. And yeah, welcome to our podcast. My name is Jenna. I am also a lead major with an emphasis in social justice and critical community engagement. And my name is Carmen, and I'm a nursing major. Okay, so I want to start by sharing a quote for you guys. So the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization, so the FAO, estimates that about 815 million people of the 7.6 billion people in the world, so that's about almost 11%, are suffering from chronic undernourishment in 2016. Almost all of those people live in the middle lower to middle income countries. There are 11 people, 11 million people in undernourished um, that are undernourished in developing countries. So I think we should start by talking about world hunger from a global north perspective. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Like, what are the dynamics surrounding the global north? Like, what do you think that the root causes of, um, like, what food insecurity is in the global north? Well, I feel like two of the major aspects that play into world hunger in relation to the global north are capitalism and also our food industry. Currently, especially in the United States, we're functioning under industrial agriculture, and this has driven with a profit, with a, um, you know, a really strong intention for profit and putting people and health in the back burner. And so what has been happening over the past decades is people are coming in and completely reworking the land in accordance with this industrial mindset. And right now we are witnessing severely depleted ecosystems and natural resources because of industrial agriculture. And it's quite alarming if you ask me. If you look around yeah. at our soils and our water systems, it's really scary to think about the future and to think about how many millions of people are going to need to depend on these resources that are clearly being abused. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and it's not, it's not sustainable. How is this going to help um, our children and many generations to come when really like we're not even feeding our children today the right amount of food and nutrients that they need just looking at um, all the foods that we see in the grocery stores and all the packaged foods I mean we don't even really know what we're eating these days in the global north at least and um, I just think that that has a huge uh, that's a huge part of food insecurity and hunger in the United States as people are are malnourished because they they aren't eating the right foods so just because of big agriculture systems and stuff like that so yeah yeah definitely i think to go off of that as well the capitalism um by the global north um buying these resources for cheaper um prices and capitalizing off of them it contributes to it because it doesn't allow third world countries to kind of um get an up um, it contributes to them living in poverty as well as um, them not being able to have their own um, due to us mm-hmm. benefiting from their resources but not giving them the price that they deserve for it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So then we have these societies that become completely dependent upon this capitalist system, mm-hmm. which really never had their well-being in mind in the first place. It's solely driving for profit. 
And if you look around, especially in the United States, people have become so accustomed to basically eating food-like substances that happen to be edible, but it's really not food. You know, like all of these ingredients are formed in a laboratory, and it's honestly a mystery that they even exist. But if you look at how humans have evolved to eat, we're supposed to be eating whole foods. And it's really alarming that so many kids are just consuming these processed food-like substances and thinking that it's normal, growing up in a society where, you know, the normal thing is to pay one dollar and get a whole meal. And then if you look at, from a nutrient standpoint, what they're really eating is just absolutely backwards. And it really goes to show that the system that we have built in this country around food hasn't had our well-being in mind at all, not only in terms of human health, but also in terms of environmental health. Because right now, we are using fertilizer and pesticide and herbicide all across our agricultural fields, and it's getting into our waterways and into our soil systems and really disrupting our entire environment. And you know, we've been treating acres upon acres this way for so many decades that now this land is completely dependent upon these chemicals, which in turn are dependent upon fossil fuels. And so the unsustainable aspect of our food system today is absolutely stark and it really needs to be looked at under a critical eye right now, or you know, rather yesterday. Mm -hmm. I mean, the time to act is like so pressing. I can't even sleep at night sometimes, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really scary shit we're talking about. Yeah. And it's really interesting what you're talking about when um, you say a lot of people um, don't even recognize or know what they're eating. And I think um, that goes to show like the pr- problem of food swamps um, in a in America, especially because we always think of world hunger as not having enough food, but really the problem is not having the right food or the nutritious um, food that our body really needs. Right. And then going off of that, it's completely connected to our government and the actions that our government has directly taken to make these foods incredibly accessible. And so, you know, the reality of what's going on is our government is subsidizing resources such as fossil fuels and grain for animals so that these operations can exist because otherwise the real price of food is not what we're being, you know, dealt in this country. We're being paid and we're paying for food, rather, in a completely externalized kind of way. We really don't understand the resources that's going into this food, and it all comes back to our government. So, you know, it's like, what is our government really valuing? Well, it's pretty clear (laughs) that they're valuing profit. You know, they're really just going after money, and people and ecosystems have been suffering from it for decades, you know, so the Mm -hmm. time for change is right about now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just to kind of go with that, I mean, I think that a major problem is that people have become very reliant on the food systems and the government and trusting that the government and the USDA, especially the USDA, is um, is certifying things as organic. When you see that certified organic on a packaged food, you're like, oh, this is good for me. You trust that that's good food for us. You trust that this is okay to eat. But I think that the major thing that people are lacking is the awareness of where our food comes from. And I think that that essentially is a root problem. I think people are kind of just um, moving far and far away from our connectivity, our interconnectedness to our food and, and where it's grown. And I think that it would be really important if people like still grew their own foods, like had their own little garden in their backyard and at least understood that how it came to be and like how simple it is to grow a garden rather than relying on these harsh chemicals and this, these huge monoculture farms. Um, and I think that that's kind of just like the main root cause is we've become 
so reliant on the big food agricultural systems, we have just become accustomed to um, eating these foods that are no good for us. And I think we're forgetting that food is what brings us together. It really, it really is. And I think that the main contributions to this is people want convenience, people want affordability, and they just kind of forget about the community aspect of growing food and what it actually means to provide food for a community and share that with the community. And I think that when we move farther away from that, we move farther away from our own roots and what it actually means to to be human and to to be a healthy human and to to thrive, I guess. So and in addition to that of just being a human is food is um, a human right. Like we're mm-hmm. um, given that right to be able to give get food. And so when it's that unhealthy food, it's almost I mean, if that's the food we're getting, if it's that unhealthy, I mean, that's not really living up to like our um, human rights um, mm-hmm. for those people that don't have access um, to that healthy food that they like deserve. Yes. Yeah, and I think to kind of go off of that as well, the question goes, how the question would be phrased for it is, why are there limited resources? You know, why don't people have access to um, have healthy food when it comes to um, people not being able to um, pay for the price of food, possibly, or mm-hmm. scarce right. markets, you know, food deserts, essentially. Like, yeah. why does it have to be that, you know, 10 miles down the road is what it takes for me to get to mm-hmm. food, so. Yeah. yeah, and I think that the root cause of that is poverty. I mean, mm-hmm. Whole Foods, for example, they're not going to place a store in a very poor community. Mm-hmm. People don't see money in that. This is all profit to them. This is all profit to big agriculture. If Coca-Cola sees that, they can invest in a poor community, then they will do that. Not not keeping these people's well-being in mind. And I mean, exactly like I think like what you said is really important that it's, it's a human, it's a basic human right to have access to whole organic foods. And I just, I just don't th- think that we should be looking at people as profit. We should be looking at their well-being and, and that will essentially help our economy in, in a whole. I mean, when people are eating whole foods, you know, it's helping their brain process things better. It's helping people um, stay more awake during the day. It's, it's, you know, it's better for our health. We're not constantly going to the doctor. We're not constantly sick. Pharmaceutical companies aren't, you know, won't, won't be profiting so much. We won't be so reliant on drugs to um, get by. You know, I think that if, if we actually, like, thought about it and didn't look at poor people as an investment for these terrible foods, I mean, we could see some great change in our society, some positive, great, healthy change. And then, Alex, I think you brought up a great point um, of how it's like a vicious um, cycle. So, like, hunger inhibits people's ability to work and learn at their fullest potential, which then traps them and their families in more poverty and then, Mm -hmm. again, more hunger. So Mm -hmm. it's just the cycle that continues Mm -hmm. um, that people get trapped in based on our um, structures that we have in place right now. Exactly. And I think that the only real way for us to move away from the crisis we're witnessing today is to embrace that interconnectivity among life and to realize that we are all part of one species and every person is connected to one another and we need to embrace the empathetic side of this human experience and realize that there are over 800 million people in the world today without enough food. 
every single day. They don't have enough food. I mean, how the heck does that make you feel? It is so overwhelming to realize that so many people don't have enough food. And what's being done about it? Absolutely nothing. I mean, you know, these companies are coming around and they're acting like, oh yeah, we're going to solve world hunger by, you know, making these poor countries reliant upon first world countries for grain imports and yada, yada, yada. But the reality is that you're never going to have food security unless you have a local food system. Mm -hmm. Because if these communities are, you know, continuously reliant upon first world countries to import grains, not only is that incredibly unsustainable because it's completely connected to fossil fuel use, but it's also not at all ensuring that these people are going to have food security. You know, they're just going to be dependent upon another country who you know, in fact, is going to be growing the food in such a way that it continues to degrade our environment and continues to reinforce world hunger and food insecurity. So, you know, we're talking about food insecurity, world hunger, capitalism. I think it's time that we bring this conversation to the global south and how this has been impacting third world countries, Mm -hmm. specifically in Africa, if you'd like to touch on that, Jenna. Sure, I'd love to. Um, So obviously when we think of world hunger, I think we automatically think of like the starving kids in Africa and um, we kind of blame their um, economy and their politics for not providing enough food. Um, But I think it's a worldly um, issue. So there's not um, a problem of not having enough resources. Um, In fact, the world economy produces enough um, wealth to provide a decent standard of living for everyone in the world, Um, but it's more the problem of the distribution of wealth, kind of what you were saying, Alan, where um, with this capitalist mindset, we take advantage of the global south, which are the countries that are low to middle income um, developing countries. So, um, like, a lot of... um, countries in Africa, their exploitation of their resources and goods are their main source to fuel that economy. Um, but the Global North um, takes advantage of that. We know they pay them very little for their um, goods, but then will sell it very highly priced um, in America or Europe. Um, so I think um, it's understanding that it's a political and economic structural issue, um, a worldly issue um, that kind of puts Um, the Global South in this position. Um, I know for a fact I did my commodity chain on chocolate and the cocoa. Um, There's a problem of child labor in Africa and Ghana, but a lot of times um, it's the farmers have to rely on that kind of labor um, because the um, Global North will pay them so low for like their cocoa, for example. Right. Absolutely classic example of how the global north comes in and really severely impacts these third world countries. Mm -hmm. And now I'd like to move the conversation to some patterns that we've been witnessing in Central and South America. Mm -hmm. For example, Banana Republic. Yeah, do you guys know? You guys know what a Banana Republic is, right? No. Could you explain that? Oh, wait, tell Alan. Okay, so... (laughs) Oh, I can't believe you guys don't know what these are. <laughs> um, so banana republics are considered to be very poor countries. Like, I'll use Honduras for an example. They've had a very um, hard time developing a um, a government, and they're also one of, like, the largest countries that has, um, like, what's it called? 
like lack of human rights, mm-hmm. I guess. Like they violate a lot of human rights as well. So um, large companies like Dole, which actually used to be called United Fruit Company um, back in the day, I think this was like in the 50s, they saw Honduras as a great opportunity to invest. And what did they say to the Honduras government? We will help you. We will pro- we will provide jobs for your people, okay? So this is what their idea was. But what actually came about it was they came in, they took up all of their land, they dug it all up and planted uh, banana farms everywhere. And what this kind of turned into, what it looks like today, is uh, there's no... There's no um, workers' rights involved because um, Honduras is not implementing this sort of government where there are workers' rights and the United um, Food Company like actually kind of like stepped out of that and was like, hey, we're not, this isn't our, this isn't our place to say that like, this is your country, like you should be implementing workers' rights. So the United Fruit Company, as we know today is Dole, kind of just stepped away and looked at it like this isn't really my problem. Where Honduras is a poor government, they they were receiving aid um, from the United Fruit Company, but really was only things like building roads and providing electricity. It really didn't have anything to do with um, improving their governments in any type of way. It actually kind of made it worse with corruption and whatnot. So that's just kind of an overview. But what's happening in these banana publics like um, Honduras is they're producing bananas in such a way that is terrible for their environment because, like we know what monoculture is for the environment it's terrible for it's terrible for the soil it's terrible for the atmosphere it's just not healthy for um that ecosystem in honduras and all the other plants that are around there when you continuously grow a plant over and over again it, it essentially depletes the, the nutrients out of the soil and, and essentially everything else is just kind of um you know it's just lacking in, in nutrients and so um Yeah, so basically to get to it is these people on these farms, they have no workers' rights. They're treated very poorly. They work long hours, um, sometimes like 14 hours a day. Yeah, just growing bananas just so the people in the global north can have them on their, their counters for their smoothies or for their banana toasts. I mean, I have banana, I used to have banana toast every day until I found this out. And it's just really hard to kind of think about it like, hey, this banana came from Honduras. That's awesome. It's from a different country. But no, it's actually, it's not that great because these people are suffering just so you can have a banana on your plate. And not only is it that they're suffering, they are also not being paid the wage that they deserve. And they're also around very, very hazardous chemicals that is creating um, problems like tumors and um, cancers and all kinds of um, skin issues and they have no um, they have no sort of government that's actually trying to enforce help for this like aid trying to help people um, you know recover from this and heal from these issues Um, it's just all these pesticides and these herbicides that are are basically killing these people all over the world that are growing our food for us. And like I said, Honduras is just one example. This is happening in countries all over like Colombia um, and and whatnot and Argentina and Africa. And And I would like to take up the conversation specifically to Brazil and what's been going on there in the Amazon rainforest. Mm -hmm. So rainforests are among the, well, no, not among the, but literally the most biologically diverse ecosystem in the world. So valuable for so many different reasons, not to mention the ability that it has to sequester carbon from the atmosphere. It's absolutely 
And um, so what has been happening time and time again in Brazil is these industries such as the cattle industry and the logging. <laughs> Hello, welcome back. So we had a little bit of a technological mishap. We thought perhaps we were going over our time limit, but then we realized that this topic is just too damn important to not talk about. So we're going to carry on. So, we were discussing Brazil and what's been happening to our beautiful rainforests. Well, first of all, I would like to reinforce the fact that when logging companies and cattle companies come into the rainforest, they completely clear-cut it, not only killing all of the plant species, but also all of the animal species. And I just want to take a quick moment to bring about this feeling of sympathy and this feeling of connectedness that I hope we all feel to the wild habitats on life. You know, we as human beings, time and time again, act as though our lives are more valuable than the lives of these innocent, beautiful animals. But in fact, they have completely an equal opportunity to be here on Earth as we do. And they are time and time again disrespected and their habitats are completely exploited in the name of human development. So let us just take a moment to let that sink into our hearts, send some love out to those beautiful animals that we keep on killing. Now back to Brazil. So we're clear cutting the rainforest and what's happening is we are producing massive amounts of paper products and furniture products and we're also growing food to feed cattle and ship it around the world because cattle is one of the most profitable endeavors that exists. Indeed, it is a multi-billion dollar industry creating a ridiculous profit for the people at the top while the people at the bottom are suffering time and time again. So I have a fun fact really quick. Please. I just want to say that um, 48% of corn crop in the world is actually used to feed animals. Just right. let that sink in. Corn that could be feeding other people is being used to feed, 48% is being used to feed the animals that we are going to eat. How does that make sense? And then if you compare the body of a damn cow to a human, I mean, it's pretty incredible that we are supporting these massive life forms while so many millions of people don't have enough food or water. Now, just to give you a little statistic, in order to produce one pound of beef, 2,500 gallons of water are required, and in turn, in order to produce one gallon of milk, 1,200 gallons of water are required. So just take a moment to let that sink in. I mean, the stark inequality mm -hmm. among our planet today needs to be addressed and immediately. Not only do we use so much water when we are producing animals for their meat and for their milk. When we in turn eat their meat, we only get 10% of the energy that actually was used and created to um, raise that animal. So the energy that that animal was holding before it died, once it's killed and slaughtered to be on our plates, we only are able to get 10% of the, that energy and that nutrients. Right, that 90% is, is lost to waste. That is a waste. Absolutely it is. And the time for change is absolutely now. So how can we make a change? Well, 
There are so many ways. First of all, I would like to talk about how organic regenerative agriculture holds the opportunity to reduce food insecurity across the board while also mitigating climate change because it's going to be creating food systems where we value the health of the soil and the health of the soil is completely dependent upon the health of the ecosystem itself. And so currently our food system is time and time again depleting our soil and, you know, putting toxic chemicals into our soil and so it's pretty much dead you know hundreds and hundreds of gallons of soil are eroded every single day Mm -hmm. but in fact we do have the ability as human beings to build soil and build soil reservoirs across the globe Mm -hmm. and it needs to happen now and also in accordance with that we really need local food systems because these communities need to be able to support themselves. Right now, food is being shipped all over the world just to get onto our plates, but you know, food comes from land and your food should come from the land that you're walking on, not the land that's, you know, 15,000 miles away. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, speaking of solutions because I think that this is an incredible solution and I think that this is something that could work if we if if we just maybe wait for the future to unfold, I, I hope, Alan, that this is going to happen, that this beautiful masterpiece of agriculture is going to happen. Um, but in our current systems, there are some solutions that are working or and not working. So what are some of those that you can think of solutions that we're actually actively growing in and, and participating in, like in terms of the United States government, What are some of those solutions that they are trying to implement? Yeah, I would say definitely the assistance programs or aid programs that they um, portray as helping um, not only other countries, but even here to start with the Global North. I mean, there's assistance programs that claim to help, you know, people that are food insecure, but there's not enough money to, to like yeah. contribute to that. Most of the things like, for example, um, food stamps that people receive, it's not enough to support their families. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you have to be um, at a certain poverty line mm-hmm. in order to even get them. Yeah. And so it leaves the people that are still struggling um, not, ab- not able to even get the assistance mm-hmm. that we're so-called offering. Right. Um, and even when it goes to aid programs, for example, to contribute to like things that are happening in the global south, um, those are just things that are treating it. I mean, it still allows for the global south to depend on the global north, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so... And it's the, not enough. It's yeah. only enough to keep, have them coming back. Yeah. It's addressing the symptoms yeah. and not the but, problem. Exactly. Right. So, like, we talked about, I think um, a solution that needs to happen is the implementation of programs that tackle um, these multiple um, drivers of food insecurity that we all talked about. I mean, mm-hmm. we've talked about quite a few things, um, but specifically programs that promote um, economic equity in the global south um, to give them those opportunities because the aid only reinforces that power hierarchy that the, glo- the global north has over the global south. So we need to create, give them um, the resources and opportunities um, that will not leave them so dependent on the global north. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And speaking about how you're talking about like the food systems and the assistance programs, something that came to mind is there is actually a large percentage of people that don't qualify for these food systems and that are people those are people with a criminal record. Mm-hmm. And in our in today's society, I mean, it's 
it's so easy to um, actually become a criminal. I mean, in order for there to be criminals, there has to be laws. Um, and that was just a quote that my professor told us today in my philosophy class. There wouldn't be criminals if there wasn't so many laws. I mean, back in the 90s, this is kind of off topic, but back in the 90s, President Clinton um, created 400 new laws that are considered to be petty laws. These are like traffic laws, like like anything that has to do with like drugs. Like if you have a very small amount of marijuana, you're locked up. You know, it's stuff like this. And it's really hard in our westernized society to come out of that. When you, when you do leave prison, you want to have a good life. You want to be able to provide food for your family, maybe go to college. Um, but you can't do that when you have a criminal record. So I think it all has to tie in with our capitalist society. And, and another thing is the people that really are overlooked too is like the middle to low class. I mean, I come from the middle to low cl class. My mom got her degree, single mom. Um, this is just an example. We, she makes enough money to put food on the table, but she also is trying to live up to these societal pressures of having um, a nice car, like going to school. Like in order to go to school, you have to take out student loans and then what do you do you pay them when you get out of when you get out of school right away like there's no turning point you have six months but that's just not enough time to find a job and so what happens when you have all these loans this car loans this this mortgage and all these things that you want to do in this westernized society to be a part of the society it's so expensive and they don't look at that as um as as something that should be considered when when granting food assistance to people. I mean, I know that my mom would have, it really would have helped us growing up if she could have gotten some food assistance growing up, but because she didn't qualify, because she made so much money, they didn't look, put into factor that she has all of these, these loans and all of these extra um, expenses. And it's, I think it just is all kind of interconnected with the capitalist society and um, societal pressures and maybe Alan you could talk to us a little bit about the separateness that we're experiencing in our society and maybe that is another like I don't know maybe a cause of all of this well Alex thank you I think it absolutely is a cause of all of this I think that we think that our lives are so separate and we're living in this individualistic mindset and I think it's toxic and I also see it as very, very clear that capitalism has failed us time and time again. I mean, today in this day and age, the top 1% of the society in the United States holds 40% of the country's wealth. I mean, that is absolutely messed up. It's really, really sad. Yeah, I mean, sad. these people have trillions upon trillions of dollars while other people are living paycheck to paycheck or, you know, living on the street. I mean, this lack of connection is going to be the death of us. We either need to embrace each other, love each other, and bring about prosperity for all, equality for all, mm -hmm. or we can kiss the human species goodbye because climate change is about to bite us in the ass. Mm -hmm. yep. Aye. All right. I think that this concludes our podcast. Of course, we could talk about this for hours. It took us a while to develop this because we just couldn't stop talking. I mean, there's just so many things to talk about. Um, but I think that this addressed some of the core root of the issues surrounding global hunger. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Um, we'll see you in class. We are one species. <laughs> <laughs> we are one. We are all connected. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank bye. you. Bye. <laughs>